2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you, the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Read a few more verses. Therefore, so in light of this truth I just shared with you, Timothy, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his grace, according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I'll read two more verses here. To which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles, for this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Let me draw your attention once more to verse 7. Verse 6 and 7. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The title here this afternoon is The Courage of the Spirit. The Courage of the Spirit. We thank you, God, for your wonderful presence that's here today. We thank you for the joy of fellowship, with not with just you, but with your people. I thank you for your people that are here today, and I pray that you would bless them with a special blessing, that you would speak directly to them. Those that are here in, in bodily presence or those that are watching online, and they may watch in the future. I pray that you would bless them and draw them close to your heart. Help us here today, God, not to be ashamed of who we are and who we identify with and who we worship, but help us to fan into flame the gifts that you've put within us, the life you've put within us, the divine nature that you've put within us, and help us, God, to walk in boldness and in courage and to be brave for you, not because we're anything great, but because we have a confidence in who you are because we know who you are and who we believe in and that you will keep us until the very end, until that great day. Help us here today. Encourage us. Make us the church here today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. This letter to Timothy is the very last letter that Paul will ever write. This is the very last letter that Paul will write. In a matter of one to two years, Paul will be dead. And one to two years after writing this letter, Paul deceased. And as far as we can tell, and what scholars tell us, and as we can gather from the Word of God, 
Paul was released from Roman imprisonment shortly after the book of Acts was written. When you read the, the end of the book of Acts in, in chapter 20, it kind of leaves you kind of as a cliffhanger there. And it says that, that Paul is there in a rented house and his friends can come freely and go freely. And as far as we can gather, Paul was actually released from house arrest. And it looks like he might have endeavored on a, a couple other missionary journeys and travels. And he might have even made it to Spain from what we can gather. But during this era in which Paul is writing this last letter he'll ever write, that's in the New Testament, this last letter to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, it's in this environment of persecution by the current Roman emperor, Nero. And around, uh, around 64 AD, Nero begins intense persecution of all Christians in the Roman Empire. And it's in the context and environment of this that Paul is arrested again, and he is imprisoned a second time. And unlike his first imprisonment, where he was on house arrest, this second imprisonment is much worse and will lead to his eventual demise, this second imprisonment. Unlike the first imprisonment, and in this imprisonment, which you can read as you read the rest of 2 Timothy, he's actually in a dungeon. And it indicates to us that's a cold, dark dungeon because at the very end of 2 Timothy, he, he implores Timothy, if you come to me, bring the cloak. He's cold. He's in a, a, a dungeon that is cold and dark and probably wet. He's chained like a criminal. He has physical chains upon him. Most of his friends have deserted him. We read that at the end of 2 Timothy. Most of his friends have deserted him. It's in this scripture that we read of Demas. He says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Things got tough. The apostle was uh, persecuted. I was taken into chains. And I'm in this shameful place, if you will, in this dark, nasty dungeon. And Demas has forsaken me. And it appears that everybody else has forsaken me. I'm all alone. And Paul says, but the Lord did not forsake me. He was with me. And even the friends who wanted to help him, it was very difficult for them to really find Paul and to be a source of encouragement to him. And we also understand that Paul is lonely because there's two instances in this letter that he implores Timothy, please come see me. I need to see you once more. I need to see you once more. By this time, Paul knew that his labor for the Lord was almost over. He knew that his demise and his death was very near because in 2 Timothy 4, 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. What you're reading in 2 Timothy is the raw emotion and heart of a man who has laid his life down for the gospel, and he's about to see his life being taken for him because he's a Christian and he is bearing his heart out to his spiritual son, which is Timothy. He's in chains in a dark dungeon all by himself. He asked Timothy, bring the parchments. Bring the, bring the other things because he still wanted to learn about God. He still wanted to, to, to search the scriptures. He's still in that state knowing he's about to die. He's still learning. He's still searching. He's still pursuing the Lord. And he, he knows my life is about to be taken. It's about to be taken. And he's bearing his heart to Timothy. This book is not theologically deep or very intellectual. It's just Paul being raw 
and he's appealing and exhorting the next generation. He's handing off the baton, if you will, to this next, next generation represented by Timothy, who now at this point is a younger man. He may be in his 30s or 40s. And, 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 and Paul is handing off the baton and encouraging him, Timothy, keep the course. Be strong in the faith. Look at my life. You can make it too. You can do it too. And he's making these appeals to him. What do we know of this person, Timothy? It's very important that you understand who he's writing to and the context in which he's writing to make more sense of this scripture we're going to look at here in a moment. We know that Timothy, he was born to a Jewish mother, Lois, and to a Greek father. He was not circumcised because his father was Greek. And when uh, uh, Paul uh, got Timothy to go on him on his journeys, missionary journeys in Acts chapter 16, because of the Jews, because he knew it would be very controversial to take an uncircumcised Greek into a synagogue or into holy places, he circumcised Timothy in Acts chapter 16. And Timothy, anywhere Paul was, that's where Timothy was. He was a spiritual son. It's very likely that Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, who we read about here in these first several verses, that they came to faith when uh, Paul and Barnabas came to Lystra while on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. This is the hometown of Timothy, Lystra. That's where he's from. And on Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, it's very likely that Lois and Eunice, who are devout Jews, who believe in the coming Messiah, when they hear the gospel that Paul preached, they believed on Jesus, and they became pillars in that local church and, and, and very res respected individuals who were Christians. And that was his heritage. How many of you have a, have a heritage uh, in the Lord? And if you do, you're very, very fortunate. And if you don't, that's okay, because a heritage can start with you. A heritage can start with the decisions you make with your spouse, the way, the way you raise your children, and you can change your family tree. doesn't matter what your parents have done, what your last name is, where you've been. God can change all of that. But he had a wonderful heritage of faith in his mother and his grandmother. And we, we see that upon returning to Lystra on a later missionary journey, he finds this young Timothy, Acts chapter 16, and he takes him with him. He's highly commended among the brethren. And he calls him his beloved son in this first several scriptures that we just read in our text. My beloved son. He loves Timothy very much. He admires him very much. They're so closely connected and have such a deep loving relationship between two Christian brothers that there's actually six New Testament letters where Timothy is stated as a co-sender with Paul. For six of the New Testament letters, Timothy is right there probably in the same room as Paul is writing those letters to these other individuals. He's a co-sender in these letters. Timothy is a special person to Paul. Paul's about to die. He knows it. His head is about to be taken. Nero, who is a maniac, he's a madman, he is persecuting the church in, in just absolutely disgusting, terrible ways that he is killing and destroying Christians. And I want to draw your attention to this here today. That every one of us, you have a task. You have a holy calling as a child of God. Doesn't matter if you're behind this pulpit or not. Doesn't matter if you have a microphone in your hand. 
You are called to be an ambassador for Christ. You are called to be a minister, every single one of us. You have a high and holy calling to represent Jesus wherever you go. Individually, every single one of you are a member of the body of Christ. And wherever you are, so is Christ. And wherever you are, so is the church. And wherever you are, you are a representative for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's no small calling and task you've been called to. You're not called just to sit on a church pew and fritter away. You're called to advance the kingdom of God. And it may not look like the next person in what God has called you to. But you're called in your own way as a member of the body of Christ to advance the kingdom of God in the way that God has called you to do that. And the task for Timothy, we read later in 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. Don't compromise the gospel. Don't water it down. Preach the word that I committed to you. Be faithful to sound doctrine and to teaching. Be gentle with people. Don't quarrel with people. Don't get wrapped up in meaningless genealogies and all these other things that people can, can, uh, can get upset about. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Exalt Jesus. Preach the word. You're in a dark world, Timothy. You've been called to lead this church in Ephesus. That's where he is. He's in Ephesus. And he's a young pastor there leading the people. Timothy's task was to lead, to preach, to evangelize the people in Ephesus. More specifically, generally he was called to be the man of God he was called to be. And every single one of you, you have a task. You're called to be the man and woman of God God has called you to be. And specifically, God has put something into your hand. He's put a gifting into your heart. He has a calling upon your life. Not all of us are a hand. Not all of us are a nose. Not all of us are a foot. We're all called to do something different in the body of Christ. But it's important that you step into that calling and you allow the gift of God within you that he has placed that you fan it into flame. And that you don't sit by on the sidelines and neglect the gift that is in you. And despite this high calling and in light of this high calling and this task that Timothy has and that you and I have, every single day there is a warfare that we wage, isn't there? There is a warfare that we wage. Every, every, every morning that you wake up, public enemy number one is Stephen Morgan, my flesh. Then I have to contend against the devil. Then I have to contend against their allurements of the world. And for Timothy, what he faced was Roman persecution, which was intensified under Nero. You know what Nero would do or what happened? Nero set the entire city of Rome on fire. He was crazy. He literally was crazy. He was a madman. And just for his own amusement, he set the entire city of Rome on fire. And for six days, that fire raged and nearly all of Rome was destroyed. People started murmuring after this happened. They realized the emperor has done this. Well, you know who the fall guy was? This new supposed Jewish sect of people called Christians. And they were the scapegoat. He said, the Christians did it. They burned Rome down. 
And the a posse of people, if you will, all these, the people and inhabitants of Rome, they began to gather up Christians. And they would put animal hair around them and let them be mauled to death by dogs. He would crucify Christians. It said that at evening time when he needed light, he would actually put Christians up upon a stake and set them on fire and make them into human torches. Appalling, disgusting ways in which he would torture and kill Christians. This was happening. This is what's happening right now. While Timothy is in the Roman Empire and he's of this Jewish sect called Christians and he's a leader. It was not glamorous or prestigious to be a Christian pastor in this time. It meant you had a road of suffering ahead of you. You had a warfare to wage. You had all kinds of things all about you, warring against you. And this is what Timothy faced. This is what Paul faced. There was not just that, but there was hostility of those in the Ephesian church who resented Timothy's leadership. You remember this in 1 Timothy? For those of us who are younger or when you've been younger, I'm sure every single one of us have been consoled by this verse. Let no one despise your youth. But be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. There were some who resented Timothy, who obviously belittled him and thought, you're too young to lead this church. He had to contend with that. You're not good enough, Timothy. You shouldn't be doing this. You ever contended with that as a Christian? Are you really called to do this? Are you really qualified? I don't know. You need a little, need a little more time before God can really use you. And there are people who disqualify you when God has qualified you. You ever heard this little, this little saying? It's kind of cliche now, but I love it. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. That's really what he does, isn't it? That's what he does. So he had to contend with that. And then just as Peter and Paul and the Apostle John, he also had to deal with false doctrine and false teachers that were rising up in the church. He had to contend against that. That's why he, he implores him, maintain sound doctrine. Uncompromisingly proclaim the word of God. And just as Timothy faces a conflict, you and I face conflict today, don't we? You face conflict today. The continual allurements and callings of the world to go back to a sinful world. The, 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 the spirit of this age that is constantly the voices swirling around us, the voices on news, the voices in entertainment, all the things around us that are trying to distract us from the one true king, which is Jesus Christ. All the things around us, everything. Even in light of this virus, the devil has really taken advantage of this time in a lot of people's lives. There are a lot of people who have lost ground in their own personal lives because they have allowed laziness and neglect to set in and the devil will seek every opportunity to gain a foothold in your life. We're facing assaults every day. Not to speak of just the, the normal occurrences in life that challenge your faith and your faith in God and your faith in the word of God. You ever face something challenging, big or small, that's a threat to make you waver in your trust in God and your faith in him and your faith in his word and to respond in fear and to respond in your own strength and power. And, you know, while Timothy faced, faced real persecution and Paul was in the midst of real persecution, all these Christians were in real persecution, we do experience persecution, but not, e not even close to what they experienced then and even what other Christians experience today. 
in tyrannical governments around this world. We are very blessed. Every one of us are extremely blessed to live in a country that has such religious freedom as it has. But that freedom is being stamped out. Mark my words, whether if it takes 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, the religious freedoms that we have will continually be extinguished. This is not just me fear-mongering. I see it. That on one front, but also there will be a, a, a continual intensification of persecution for anybody who agrees with Christ or who stands for any kind of standard of morality and righteousness and holiness. You will be derided, you will be bullied, you'll be pressured to compromise the truth of the word of God, and you're going to be bullied just to step right in line with everybody else and go with the course of culture. And we are supposed to be contrary to culture. We're to, we're to stand in stark contrast to the flow of culture around us. Dead fish can't go upstream. You understand what I'm saying? Dead fish cannot go upstream. If you're not alive in Christ, you're just going to go with the flow like the rest of the world. But if you're in Christ, you have the power to go against, to go upriver, if you will, and to wage against the conflict and what we face daily. And so let's bring it to our scriptures. I'm going to bring it down to this, wrap up. And so this conflict that Timothy faced, it must have been overwhelming. And it might have been leading to a temptation for Timothy to respond in fear or with timidity or with cowardice. And apparently Paul is not completely satisfied with, Timothy, with Timothy's current state and the usage of the gift of God within him and walking in the calling that God had called him to. And Paul is imploring him, look here in verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For Timothy, the gift of God is that he gave him the gift to preach, to teach, to evangelize, to lead the church of Jesus Christ. God gave him the capacity to lead the church of Jesus Christ, which was in Ephesus. But God has placed some sort of gift in every one of you. Because as I said earlier, he's called you to the fight. He's called you to advance the kingdom of God. He's called you to do something and not just sit in a pew and be a spectator while everybody else ministers. You're called to minister in some way. Called to exalt the person of Jesus Christ and proclaim the gospel. When he says, stir up the gifts, this literally means keep the fire alive. Alive. Or fan into flame the gift of God. This is especially relevant in this context of ancient history. When you had to cook in this day and time, how did you cook? You used a fire. And if you wanted to cook in the morning, in the middle of the day, or later in the day, you had to continuously have some hot coals or embers that were ready to fan into flame so that when you're ready to eat or to boil water, that you can create a fire. And you got these embers, these red-hot embers or coals that, that are there throughout the day. And, and when you need it to, to, to cook food or boil water, you fan into flame, you provide oxygen, and then you fuel it with wood or some other fuel that will burn and cause a fire to come up. And what he's telling Timothy, Timothy, you've neglected some things maybe in your life. And also in 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy, do not neglect the gift of God in you. Timothy, it's apparent he had a, a tendency towards fearfulness or timidity or cowardice, especially in light of this current climate he finds himself, 
where there's this unprecedented persecution by this madman, which is the emperor Nero. And he's trying to encourage Timothy, take courage. Don't let the fire of God, the flame of God, the gift he's put into you, he's called you to it. It's by his mercy and his grace. He's called you to do it. Now fan into flame. Not not merit the gift of God, but cultivate it. Give attention to it. Pray and seek the Lord and exercise this gift God has given you. Walk in the calling I've called you to walk. Be who I called you to be. Because there's a war, there's a fight out there. And you've been called to be a soldier. And yes, you may have to endure hardship as a soldier, but you serve a wonderful, good general. You serve a good God who you are privileged to serve and to proclaim his gospel. So fan the embers and keep fanning into flame. Exercise this gift. In verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but has given us his spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And this is where I want to land and end right here. He has given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, this word fear here, it's not the same word for fear that you find in other places in the Greek text. Another word for fear in the Greek text is phobos, where we get our English word phobia. If you recall in 1 John, where he says, um, uh, he's talking about we don't, we don't have a fearful expectation of judgment. There's no fear in love. That word there is phobos. There's no terror or, or uh, um, thought of judgment if we're in Christ. But here, this word in the original Greek, it denotes more so not a terror, but it denotes more so a timidity or a cowardness. It, it, is, it is a character which, which is um, identified by a lack of courage or confidence. I read a a little uh, story by Paul Harvey. How many of you remember Paul Harvey? And that's the rest of the story. But there's this story he tells of one summer morning as Ray Blankenship was preparing his breakfast, he gazed out the window and saw a small girl being swept along in the rain-flooded drainage ditch beside his Andover, Ohio home. Apparently it's one of those big, huge ditches. It looked like a river when it's overflowing. Blankenship knew that farther downstream, the ditch disappeared with a roar underneath a road that emptied into the main culvert. Ray dashed out the door and raced along the ditch, trying to get ahead of the foundering child. When he hurled himself into the deep, churning water, Blankenship surfaced and was able to grab the child's arm. They tumbled end over end. Within about three feet of the yawning culvert, Ray's free hand felt something, possibly a rock, protruding from one bank. He clung desperately, but the tremendous force of the water tried to tear him and the child away. And he said to himself, if I can just hang on until help comes, he thought, He did better than that. By the time fire department rescuers arrived, Blankenship had pulled the girl to safety. Both were treated for shock. On April 12, 1989, Ray Blankenship was awarded the Coast Guard Silver Life-Saving Medal, 
The award is fitting, for this selfless person was at even greater risk to himself than most people knew. Ray Blankenship can't swim. And you, you cannot be courageous and brave enough in your own power and strength. You cannot stir yourself up enough in your own flesh and naturalness enough to dispel all the fear that keeps you from moving forward and then exhibit some sort of supernatural, human, courageous moment so that you can advance the kingdom of God. You do not have the strength in yourself, much like Moses. God called Moses to deliver his people. And how did Moses respond? I can't speak. You're asking me to be a mouthpiece for God, and that's the one thing I can't do. I have a stutter. I can't speak. And that's exactly the point. You can't speak. You can't swim. You're not strong enough. But he provides the grace. He provides the gifting. He provides the calling. And it's our responsibility to simply submit to that, surrender to that, and exercise and take courage in God. Have confidence in Him and not in your own self. Look to the confidence you can gain by the victory of Jesus Christ's cross. Look to Him as your victor. Don't look to your weaknesses. Look to His strength as your general and as your victor who leads you through battle all the way to victory. I got to tell you, naturally, me, personally, I'm a very timid person. If, maybe some of you can relate to this in the same sense that I experienced this or in the opposite. If I go to a restaurant and I order a dish, a plate of food, let's say we go to Carabas and I buy a really expensive steak or something like that. And if the waiter brings me the food and it's not exactly how I ordered it, I don't say anything. I don't like to disrupt what is already in front of me. I don't, want, I don't want to be a bother. I just don't want to say anything. I'm quite timid, and you might say I'm cowardly. But I'm just, whatever's in front of me, okay, I'll just, I'll just eat it, whatever. You know, there's starving people in Africa. I can eat this. I know I'm, pray, I'm, I know I'm paying for it. I just don't want to say anything. I'm going to eat this. That's my nature. Even growing up, I was very cautious and reserved and timid. And you can kind of see that in Lily. Lily kind of has that, that same, same character or quality. And while in the natural, uh, timidity may be harmless in many ways, it's absolutely detrimental in the spiritual. To be full of fear, to be full of timidity, to be full of cowardice, but I'm so glad to say that despite our natural tendencies, despite our disposition, all of us can become a Moses. All of us can become a David. Little as much when God is in it. When God is in it, he can take what little we have, what little faith, what little talents, and he can take, make much of it to advance his kingdom. He wants to give you courage to face the world out there. He wants to give you courage. You know what courage is? It is the ability to do something that frightens you. 
Courage is the ability to do something that frightens you. It is strength in the face of pain or grief. And I want you to know, God's Spirit encourages you. That word encourage, it literally means to put in courage. If you look at the etymology of that word, God wants to encourage your spirit. He wants to put courage. He wants to infuse steel into your spirit. He wants to make you a hardened soldier for Jesus Christ. Hardened in the sense that you can withstand the attacks of the enemy and that you will not crumble when you face life's circumstances. Very quickly. On the contrary, he's not given us a spirit of fear. And, and for me personally, I believe he's talking about God's spirit. That when we become children of God, his spirit, his divine spirit, it comes and dwells within us and it affects and transforms our spirit. He transforms our very identity and character and makes us into something that we're not. And he says that the spirit of God, look here verse 7, has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This word power, and I also want you to notice, he has given it. You have it. You have it right now. You have, through Jesus Christ, you have power. You have love. You have access to a sound mind. You have access to all those things. It's already been accomplished at the cross. The question is, are you going to allow God to cultivate that and bring it to pass in your life? He's given us power. That's the same word dunamis that you reread in Acts chapter 1-8. This means strength or ability. The challenges that you face, that you're unable to overcome, the wisdom that you need, things that far exceed your intellect and your ability to meet the needed hand. He will give you the power and the strength to overcome temptation or to meet the need at hand. You can't do it in your own power and strength, but he will give you the ability to navigate the detours and roadblocks of life in his power. He'll give you love. He'll give you this agape love. The single greatest motivator for pleasing God is loving God. Love is the greatest motivator in this Christian life. God's love is better than anything else you can experience. When you get so enraptured and enamored by God's presence and the love he shares with you, we love him because he first loved me. I can't help but fall in, fall in love with him when I realize how good, how beautiful, how wonderful he is. And everything in this world that it has to offer pales in comparison to the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ my Lord. To love him. There's nothing that compares to the love I share with him. And this same love, it controls or compels me. That I'm so arrested by this love, I can't help but do for him. I'm not going to just sit on a pew and listen to a sermon every week. I have to do something about it. I have to minister to a coworker. I have to minister to a family member, a neighbor, a friend. I have to minister to the person behind the counter at HEB or the gas station. I have to share Jesus with somebody. This love of God compels me. It controls me. And I can't help but do the will of God. I can't help but do it. It allows you, it allows you to love the unlovable. Timothy is facing great persecution from supposed Christians, great persecution from the world around him. And if he's going to minister to a hardened world who hates him, he has to have love for those people. 
If you're going to minister to anybody, it can't be because it's your duty. It has to be because, oh, I love these people. They're a soul who are dangling over the pits of hell, and they need Jesus Christ. And the world, listen, the world needs to see a love that does not exist in this natural world. Even the tax collectors greet those who greet them. Even the tax collectors do something for somebody who can do something for them. All the sinners do that. But what about loving somebody who's unlovable? Loving somebody who can't do anything for you? Loving somebody who hates you? And you respond by blessing and praying for that person. That's a supernatural, godly, Christ-oriented love. And that's the kind of love that people need to see. They need to see this love that is otherworldly, that is supernatural, and that allows you to see the need more than that person's hang-up or that person's hatred or that person's ugliness of character. It allows you to see them as Christ would see them, a sheep without a shepherd. And lastly, he gives us a sound mind. Come help me, Steve, please. He gives us a sound mind. And really what this means is he gives us sound judgment or self-discipline. There are so many people today, especially in light of the environment we're in, there are so many people today who are confused, who are unstable in their thinking, who are fickle and undisciplined. They can't hang on to anything. They can't stay committed to anything. They face life struggles and they collapse and absolutely fall apart. There are many people who are more than ever who are afflicted in their minds and it affects their thinking. It affects the choices they make, the things they do, how they spend their money, who they spend their time with. There are people who are tormented in their minds and they have no foundation for living. It's just whatever feels good. Just follow my heart. Do what I think is right. And it always leads to destruction. It may work out for a little while, but it eventually will lead into destruction. And we understand that from 2 Corinthians that the God of this world has blinded people's minds, blinded their eyes. But when the Spirit of God comes into your life, He gives you a sound mind. He gives you sound judgment. He gives you the ability in every life circumstance, to think clearly, to not be governed by your emotions, to not be governed by the circumstances around you. When you get a phone call, and it's a harrowing phone call, you don't respond in fear. You respond with faith in Christ Jesus. You respond with the soundness of mind. You respond with wisdom and discernment because the Spirit of God is within you. And you're not going to just run off and just do this like a chicken with their head cut off. No, you have a sound mind. Christ is there. He's ruling and reigning. And every decision you make, everything you think, everything you do, he's there to give you a sound judgment and the self-discipline in your mind. I love what Alexander McLaurin says. He says, the man who cannot say no is doomed to say yes. The man who cannot say no is doomed to say yes. He wants to give us that Self-control that comes from above. Y'all stand with me. Look here on the screen. Let me, let me finish right here. Let me just read verses 8 through 12 now. 
in light of what we just read. Now, look what, look what Paul says to Timothy. So therefore, because of what the Spirit of God is doing, what he has done, when you fan into flame and you give attention to the gift of God in you, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. You cannot face these sufferings, Timothy, unless the Spirit of God is working in you and you're fanning into flame this gift that he has given you. And then over in chapter 4, verse 6 is... Verse 6 through 8, let me finish right here. Here's how Paul finishes his very last letter to Timothy and for him to ever write when it comes to the New Testament letters. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, For every single one of us, there's going to be a day that is a finally day. That's what all of us are looking forward to, is a finally. When this warfare, when this labor is over, finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This applies to Timothy. It applies to you. God can keep you. He can strengthen you. He can empower you to live an unashamed Christian life that proclaims Jesus and Jesus alone. That's full of power and love and self-discipline. Not for your own glory, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. And until that glorious day, we will fight, we will war, We will pray. We will pray faith-filled prayers. We will seek the Lord. We'll keep our eyes on him. We're going to allow steel to enter into our character, into our spirit. And we're going to fight with all that we have within us by God's power and might. Amen? We resist fear. We keep fanning the flame within us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God.